Well, this is a recording made in the chapel of the open book, especially intended for beginners. There will be about 20 minutes devoted to each study, and so there will be six of such studies on one of these double pools, smalls. And I would suggest to those of you who are listening that it would be useful if you had a notebook uh, so that you could keep a little record and maybe uh, jot down a few questions that may arise as we go forward. Now this is study number one, and we are entitling this series Short Studies for Beginners. Well, I think I ought to begin at the beginning, and that is not to quote scripture. You say, oh, but surely, the chapel of the open book. Yes, friends, but there are many books in this world that claim that they were begun by God. God's revelation. And they've got followers. Well now, which one is it you're going to accept? Don't you see, at the beginning, the young person has always got this problem. Well, how do you know the Bible's true? If you've never had that asked you, you will yet. Unless you keep yourself very much inside your shell. Well, I think we ought to face that, don't you? And so for the first 20 minutes, a little bit less now, of course, as I've used some in the introduction, I'm going to get outside testimony. Some years ago, just at the end of the last war, as I was walking along Oxford Street one evening, uh, an American soldier said to me, Say, boy, he said, uh, where's the British Museum? Well, I said, you're not far from it. You go along Berry Street and it's on the other side of the way. But I said, it's shut. It's too late. Oh, he said, I just want to walk past the little old place. Well, we can't walk past the little old place. But we shan't do much more in 20 minutes. But if ever you come with me round the British Museum, you know we have to keep the pace up as much as ever we possibly can to cover the ground in, 20, in two hours. But nevertheless, I believe I can demonstrate enough of the historic accuracy of this book to make it well worthwhile considering its teaching. So here we are. Now in this British Museum, we have bricks and stones and tablets and parchments and some of them are originals, some of them are copies, some of them go back as far as 3,000 years and most of them have been recorded by those who had no knowledge of God no knowledge of the Bible, they were just recording their own personal history. They didn't know that in God's providence, some of these pagan heathen men would have inscribed something which would say, and that shows the Bible to be trustworthy. Well, that's as far as we shall be able to do in this little scamp around, but it may be a good preparation. Now, as we enter the British Museum, we, we can turn immediately into what is called the Roman Gallery. Well, I don't stop there, except as we go by, you'll see three portrait busts of three of the Caesars that are mentioned in the New Testament. There's Caesar Augustus, in whose reign our Saviour was born. There is Claudius, who is mentioned by name in the middle of the Acts of the Apostles. And there is Nero, who was the Caesar to whom Paul appealed at the end. Well then, I'm speaking about bricks. We find we've got bricks made of Nile mud with straw in about pieces of about uh, half inch long, still very visible, and stamped with Egyptian hieroglyphics. And some bear the inscription that they were built, that they were made 
for the building of the cities Pithom and Ramses. Well, there you're taken right back to the early chapters of the book of Exodus. And the bricks are in the British Museum. While we are dealing with odds and ends, uh, you'll find one table case contains uh, quite a number of razors. They're not the kind of razors we use today, either the RV type or the safety razor. But they're razors. And if you read the book of Genesis, you'll find one little comment. It says that Joseph shaved himself. Now, why that should be put in the Bible, you may say, why? Well, it was just one of those little indications that the one who wrote it knew the truth, because nobody could appear in the presence of a pharaoh who had a beard. And even pharaoh's beard was tied on, and you can see the band round the chin of Thothmes in the Egyptian gallery. You see, just those little incidental bits. Well, now let's come a little bit nearer to some features that may be of interest. I was asked only today about a doorstep. Well, a doorstep's a good start, isn't it? And there is a doorstep which is of peculiar interest to us because it contains the actual name, very clearly cut, of Nebuchadnezzar. But as it's possible in the course of years, this exhibit has been shifted from one place to another, that's very likely, I've found I've got the exact number so that that would remain. So if you want to trace this, and you find it difficult in your visit, the number of the exhibit is 90851. That's not Nebuchadnezzar's telephone number, but that's the number of the exhibit on the doorstep. And this doorstep made of bronze was the entrance to a temple that was dedicated to one of the gods of uh, Babylon, but it was commemorating the restoration of a tower that Nebuchadnezzar found in ruins in his own day, but which he said in his inscription had been built by the first king of Babylon. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar knew his own history and he was right, well, the first king of Babylon was Nimrod, Genesis 10, and the building of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. And you will find some of the coloured tiles that were used for the rebuilding of that uh, tower in the museum, and you will discover that they were seven colours. Seven colours of the planets, like Mars and Venus and so on. A sort of anticipation and a travesty of the twelve foundation stones, which were not coloured tiles, but were precious jewels of the New Jerusalem. Well, that's just in passing. Nebuchadnezzar is an actual person. His name is there, and all his boast with regard to the buildings that are associated with his reign. When we come nearer to the um, uh, scriptures, those who are in the scriptures, and the first one that I want to mention is what is called the Moabite stone. Now this stone is not very large, it's three feet ten inches high, two feet wide, and fourteen and a half inches thick. But it goes back to the time of the first book of Kings where we read about Misha, the king of Moab. I've got this comment. The language of the inscription is noteworthy. Between it and the Hebrew, the differences are few and slight. It is a proof that the Moabites were akin to the Israelites in language as well as in race. The monument was raised by Misha, king of Moab, 
and records the deliverance of his land and people from the dominion of Israel. He was a sheep master, he rebelled against the taxation, and he writes this testimony to the deliverance which his God had effected for him. Uh, one of the things which is of most in- interest to us is that the very name Jehovah, as we find it in the Old Testament, is found written on that slab right back in those days. And not only so, but another word which I'm sure you heard and used, perhaps some of you have actually joined in singing the hymn, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Well, this stone is an Ebenezer, for this man, Misha, says he erected this stone of salvation as a thank offering to his God. So here's an Ebenezer, which I think is of useful knowledge to us. Well then, there's another person of great importance that comes into the story, and that is Sennacherib. And we have a cylinder of Sennacherib on which we read these words. I then besieged Hezekiah of Judah, who had not submitted to my yoke. I captured forty-six of his strong cities and fortresses, and innumerable small cities which were round about them, with the battering of rams, the assault of engines, the attack of foot soldiers, mines and breaches in the wall. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up within Jerusalem, his royal city. Well, there's a testimony written by that man, Sennacherib, that Hezekiah was besieged in Jerusalem. And not only so, here's a little point of accuracy. It says in this inscription that he received from Hezekiah 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver. But if you check that by the scriptures, you'll find the 30 talents of gold are in the scriptures, but only 300 talents of silver. Now, why the difference? Or you say immediately the Bible's wrong. That's what some people do. But it only proves the accuracy of the Bible because it's been discovered, and I'll give you the name of the man who is the guarantee for this, Basil T.A. Everts, who was of the Assyrian Department of the British Museum, he tells us the Palestinian talent of silver was exactly eight-thirds of the Babylonian. So the Bible is absolutely right, although on the surface it could be proved to be a mistake. Well, then we have another monument which is of great importance to us in this sense that it contains two kings together. If you were manufacturing a history and inventing it, it would be pretty dangerous to put two kings side by side unless you were sure because you may be a hundred or two years out. Well, there's what is called the Black Obelisk. And the Black Obelisk is a a representation of Jehu, the son of Omri, paying his tribute. There he is. There's his name, carved. And at the foot of this same obelisk, there is Hazael, king of Damascus. And if you like to turn to 2 Kings, chapter 10, 31 and 32, you'll find Jehu, the son of Omri, in one verse, and Hazael, king of Damascus, in the other. Now, we're not going to be saved. Our sins are not forgiven because Jehu, the son of Omri's name's there. But if we get a list like this and show that wherever there is a possible contact with the Bible history and ancient documents or monuments, it always rings true, then it's a challenge to us to accept the book and its teaching as well. That's the reason we're giving this. Well then, another monument which is of interest to us is called the Code of Hammurabi, or Karabai as they pronounce it, a very guttural we pronounce it much more softly, 
in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, the code of Amraphel. Amraphel, the one who uh, was engaged, with whom Abraham was engaged at the rescue of Lot. And this code, which has been written on stone, right back in the days of Abraham, contains quite a number of features which you find in operation in the book of Genesis. These laws of Hammurabi governed the peoples from the Persian Gulf to the Caspian Sea and from Persia to the Mediterranean and were enforced throughout Canaan. We have the law of adoption which we have in Genesis 15. We have the giving of Hagar to Abraham. We have the inability of Abraham to sell Hagar. We have all sorts of features which we find rules and regulations in Genesis which are on this monument, the Code of Hammurabi. Well, if a heathen king could put his laws on a stone and engrave them in the days of Abraham, are we going to say that God couldn't put his on stone in the days of Moses? There it is, that standing monument to that effect. Well then, as our time is already limited, we turn to the manuscript section. Because in the British Museum, we have priceless manuscripts that go back to the 4th century. And when you say the 4th century, don't forget that's 300 and something. And when you say the end of the 1st century, that means to say there's only about 100 and 150 years between the time when John wrote his last piece and these copies were made that we're speaking of. We have the Alexandrian, we have the Vaticanus, and we have the Sinaiticus. That's the names given to them, because one was sent about 400 years ago to this country from Egypt, one was discovered in the monastery of Sinai by Tischendorf. One is still the, the original in the library of the Vatican. And by the time you, you collate these manuscripts, put two and two together, you're practically certain of the original words that were found in the copies they had before them. One feature of interest uh, is uh, that um, in this same part of the museum, there's a slab of wax on which someone has been writing a whole list of shorthand symbols. Now, some people will look at you with a certain amount of incredulity and say, shorthand in the days of the Apostle Paul. Yes, yes, I've seen a manuscript in which you've got the equivalence of almost all the words that are used in the New Testament and their equivalent shorthand symbols. And if you read the 16th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, you'll read one verse that says, I... Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Well, you say Tertius wrote the epistle to the Romans? I thought Paul wrote it. Well, when you get the Brian Expositor, you may think that I wrote it, but I didn't. Some person I've never seen set up the type down in Worcester. Don't you see? Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, but he may have dictated it to Tertius, whose name means number three, a slave who could take it down in shorthand and then write it out in a far better handwriting than Paul would ever exhibit. So we have all these testimonies that we have in this wonderful set of museum. Well now, there's so many other things we find in the Acts of the Apostles, in the uh, 17th of Luke, that the leaders of the city there are called polytarchs. And then when we come further on in Acts 19, we read the leaders of the city there are called atheists. Well now, up to a few years ago, nobody knew whether it was right or wrong. But we don't find that 
We don't find that Luke, when he wrote the Acts of the Apostles, has made any mistake. We don't find that he put Asiarchs where he ought to put Polytarchs. Oh, by the way, you see, Asiarch means a ruler of Asia, and Polytarch means a ruler of a city. There they are in the British Museum, in exactly the same localities as we would expect to find them. And then, another feature in the museum which is of importance to us is a stone called the Rosetta Stone. This doesn't make any contribution to the knowledge of the Bible in the way of history, but it does show you how there's been a providence in the, so that we can get right back to these ancient um, languages. I mean, you've seen the Egyptian hieroglyphics. Well, you can look at them to the day of doom and they may not mean anything to you or to me. But through the wars conducted by Napoleon, there was brought to light a slab of stone, a black slab of stone called the Rosetta Stone. And that has upon it three sets of inscriptions, one in Egyptian hieroglyphics, one in Egyptian demotic or people's writing, and one in ordinary everyday Greek. Well, the one in Greek could be immediately translated, and it was found that the name Ptolemaios, Ptolemy the king, occurred at regular intervals. And in the hieroglyphic section, there was a group of signs that were always wrapped up in a sort of little parcel. So somebody said, I wonder whether that's Ptolemy. And he put down the peculiar symbols and compared them with another lot which they guessed was Cleopatra, and there was about half a dozen letters suddenly jumped out and said, here we are. And today, if you like, you can swap the Egyptian grammar the same as you do your Greek or your Latin. It's all open. So that when we read in the book of Genesis now, the uh, peculiar title that was given to Joseph, Zathnathpania, well, instead of reading what it says in the marginal version, you can translate it straight away from the hieroglyphics. The corn or the bread of life. What a picture of Christ Joseph is. And his Egyptian title is the self-same thing. The bread of life. Well, there we've just sort of gone round the museum wore a terrible pant. But there's one that I've omitted which I think I must include. And that is... Um, the name of Belshazzar. When I was in the museum some years ago, I was up in that section, and there were two ladies sitting there. They weren't saying a word, except, uh, almost were saying, all my poor feet, and I could do with a cup of tea. Well, I felt I would risk speaking to strangers in the public museum, and I said to them, do you know that immediately behind your head is one of the most important exhibits in this museum? They said, no. Well, I said, you know, the critics used to say they got a long list of the kings of Babylon and they knew the Bible was wrong because Belshazzar was never mentioned. Well, I said, by saying that, they said the Bible was more true than their records because now you can see a cylinder that was taken from the bottom of the temple and it reads a prayer to the God of Babylon for Belshazzar, my son, that he may be kept from sin and have a long life. Well, the prayer couldn't be answered because he wasn't kept from sin and he didn't have a long life, but Belshazzar, my son, the king who built that temple, had a son named Belshazzar. And then there's been unearthed from the fans the records of a banking firm that ran for about 600 years in that part of the world. And in the records, there is the banking account of Belshazzar, son of the king. Now, do I speak to you with any sympathy? 
I believe a banking account can sometimes become a myth. But I've never heard of a myth. Unless it's Miss so-and-so, misfortune perhaps. I've never heard of a myth who had a banking account. So I say to you, you beginners, here's just a few of the many, many evidences that have been brought to light by the spade of the archaeologist to show that you can get name after name after name and portions of history in the Old Testament as well as New that are verified by these testimonies. And so I say, if that's the case, the book at least claims our attention. I end this first of the series by asking you two questions which you may like to write down and give your own answers. How many kings are proved to be historic persons in this rapid survey of the uh, testimony of the British Museum? And secondly, how does the discrepancy of the talents of silver, which are mentioned on Sennacherib's cylinder, prove rather than disprove the accuracy of the Bible?